Welcome to Postpartum Stories with Steph, candid conversations with mums and sometimes dads about the precious yet chaotic time that is life after birth. My name is Steph, woman, warrior, wife, mother, coffee lover and feminist. I'm a postpartum doula in Melbourne and you can find me on Instagram at postpartum underscore with underscore Steph with a PH. Through this podcast, I will chat to women and birthing people in a real and raw way about their postpartum experience. So sit back, grab a cuppa, even if it's cold, take off your bra and enjoy. On today's episode, I'm joined by Lauren Parr. Lauren is a mum to her two-and-a-half-year-old son, Marley, and she's recently become a single parent after her relationship ended quite recently. She chats to me about her first 40 days of postpartum, where she really honoured herself and her boundaries. She talks about breastfeeding and co-sleeping and how she was diagnosed with an autoimmune disease in postpartum uh, called Sjogren's Syndrome. Lauren also shares about her experience of pregnancy and postpartum as a mixed race woman and how she has experienced racism in relation to herself and to her son. Lauren is based in the UK. She's a yoga instructor and an emerging doula and I'll leave all of her details and her Instagram handle in the show notes. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Uh, If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave me a review and a rating if you've enjoyed it. Uh, It really helps to um, get the show out to new listeners. Hope you enjoy. So I would love to know a little bit about what postpartum was like for you. Because you were in Sydney, right? I was, yeah. So I had um, Marley at Randwick uh, Women's Hospital. And for me, postpartum, um, it was very intense. The first month of postpartum was absolutely amazing. Uh, My mum was over from England for a month while I was pregnant and she stayed for a month after he was born. And that was just, it was just such a beautiful time because um, she looked after us and we just got to bond as a family. Um, I literally spent most of the first month in bed or on the sofa and I was just cuddling, feeding Mm -hmm. and eating. Yeah, I had a couple of trips down to the beach, uh, but we had a big balcony, so we moved our dining table out to there, and we just spent mm. most of our time at home eating just delicious food. And I found the book the first forty days while I was pregnant, and I think that really shifted what happened in my postpartum for me mm. because it was all about prioritizing myself, which is not something that I've ever really done before I've always been quite a people pleaser and I just took so much from that book I prioritized my sleep Uh, there was an occasion when friends were coming over and I cancelled as Marley had got off to sleep and I decided I needed a nap 
Mm-hmm. And that's not something I ever would have done before. Mm. I would have entertained them and let them hold a baby just like how I was before. Mm. So that was a big shift for me. It's really hard as a people pleaser because I, I definitely identify as a people pleaser, <laughs> although I'm trying to kind of work on that a little bit. Um, but yeah, it's hard in postpartum to, you can't please people, you know, you have to put yourself first and your baby first. And yeah, I, I sort of have this rule that anyone that you wouldn't be comfortable being in your pajamas around shouldn't be coming over. (laughs) So it's so good that you were, you know, kind of firm on those boundaries. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and I really surprised myself how firm I was with them. And just having my mum there was really just beautiful because she just took care of all the food, mm. took care of anything that we needed. And we were just able to just really bond as like our new little family of three. Yeah, that's that was so lovely. good. And so you found the First 40 Days book sort of towards the end of your pregnancy. Is that right? I did. So while I was pregnant, um, towards the, I'd say the third trimester, I, things got really dark for me. I felt really lonely and very much um, on my own. My partner was working, um, I think he was doing like nine days on five days at home, mm-hmm. plus a lot of travel time. So he wasn't around that much. And I didn't have any friends that had babies. So I just, yeah, I just felt like I didn't really have anyone to talk to. All my friends that had babies were in the UK. And I actually started seeing a therapist and I was diagnosed with perinatal anxiety and depression. Mm. So then I became really concerned with postpartum depression. And I was just really worried about bonding with my baby, um, potentially harming my baby. Not that I had any thoughts of that. But I just knew from learning about postpartum depression how dark it can get. Mm. And I really just wanted to stop that from happening and just learn as much as I could about it to just prevent it before Mm. having the baby. So I gathered all the resources that I could um, on like mum's mental health, making the mum feel as good as possible. And that was just one of the books that I found and I just loved it because mm. there was a lot of research in the book that people had that had gone through the first 40 days in this particular way. And sorry, it's been a while since I read the book, but I think it's um, a traditional Chinese practice mm. or some kind of Asian practice. And just their outcomes for bonding with the baby and maternal health and happiness was just um, a lot higher than in Western cultures. Mm. So I was just really drawn to that book, loved it, implemented as much as I could out of it. um, And I felt that it definitely really helped. That's so good. And yeah, I mean, our society in in Western culture is kind of to bounce back and, you know, be like running marathons a week after having a baby and doing all this stuff that's just not realistic and not good for us so um yeah it sounds like you found the perfect fit in in that book I did but even then I was very much in the mindset of you know you spend the first six weeks postpartum 
and that's your postpartum period <laughs> and then after that life gets back to normal mm. so I wasn't planning on breastfeeding any longer than six weeks I was going to start sleep training I had the save our sleep foot <laughs> that never got used um yep. you know baby goes into its own room your sex life resumes and life is just you know back to normal after that magic six weeks mm. But my baby never made it into a car. Mm-hmm. Um, he's only just got his own bed now, um, this week. Um, yeah, there was, there was just a lot that I thought that I would, yeah, that would have gone back to normal. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's a common thing as well, because we sort of get told, you know, we have our six week checkup, our babies get a checkup at six weeks. You know, if you've had a C-section, you can drive after six weeks. It's always six weeks, six weeks, six weeks. But yeah, it's not like a magic kind of like a switch doesn't go off to kind of get your life back to normal or, you know, how it was before you had a baby. I don't think it ever goes back to how it was before. But um, so how did you go um, stopping breastfeeding at six weeks? (laughs) (laughs) well two and a half years later (laughs) not quite stopped um yeah yeah so we're actually still going I never ever thought I would be going this long yeah um but it just really works for us I enjoy it he loves it I have boobies screamed at me constantly (laughs) um yeah it's it's really the greatest kind of sorry to talk over you it's the greatest um tool that we have you know in our bag of tricks to kind of settle a baby make them happy quench their thirst like it does so many things (laughs) why would you want to stop doing it (laughs) it really does and then you get to the toddler stage and they're having meltdowns and it's just that comfort for them afterwards Mm. and particularly in our situation we've moved so we moved from uh, Sydney to Adelaide when he was a year old we've we then moved to the UK about six months after that we moved in with my ex-partner's family a few months after that and now we've just moved into our own house so Marley's only two and a half so that's a lot of upheaval in his last year and a half Yet I feel that from breastfeeding and with co-sleeping, the two main things in his life have always been constant. Mm. And I think that's really helped um, settle him wherever we've been. Yeah. Because he's always got that. Yeah. Yeah. You've sort of provided him with that safe space, no matter what country you're in or what state you're in or what house you're in, which is so beautiful. Yeah. yeah and so and how did you kind of navigate sleep because yeah you mentioned sleep training and you know that kind of stuff was it sort of once he was born actually you tell me the story I won't (laughs) preempt it Um, so yeah he never made it into a cot when I was pregnant my mum actually said to me um you won't want to put your baby in a cot I never put any of you in a cot um, and actually I replied to her, um, you're not allowed to sleep with your baby in the bed with you. Cause I genuinely thought it was illegal to have <laughs> babies in bed with you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she was just like, it's your baby, Lauren. I, you know, you can do what you want. Mm-hmm. Um, so I chatted to a midwife about it cause I was still in the 
frame of mind that I needed to get permission. <laughs> and I was shown how to safely bed share. Mm-hmm. And the first night in the hospital after I had him, um, I just slept to him in bed. And it was just so beautiful that I was just, that, that was just me. Mm. I was just, that's just all I wanted to do. You were sold. <laughs> I was sold on that. Um, and then when we brought him home, just, it really worked for our family. He didn't actually have a cot until he was about six months old. And then he still never went in it. Um, yeah, it's only this, eight, he's always had a bed and he's been put in it from about one years old, but he's always been free to just, climb in our bed if he wants to and this week with his new bed and he's got lovely animal covers and he's really loving the fact that he has his own bed Mm. so just letting him do that in his own time has just been great because now he asks to go in the animal bed and there's no upset or trauma around like him having to be in his own bed it's just happened really naturally and Mm. I'm really pleased that we got to do it like that yeah that's so good because he's sort of got that ownership over making that decision to either sleep in your bed or sleep on his own I think it's really interesting how you said you thought that bed sharing was illegal and I think that that's common because you know the information around bed sharing you know if you would to google it would probably be that you know it's dangerous and you're going to squish your baby or you're going to roll over onto your baby or you know the horror stories but you know as you said like if you're shown how to do it safely like obviously there's ways that are unsafe um but if you're shown how to do it safely like you know i know many mothers who have survived because of bed sharing <laughs> yeah i absolutely agree um just being able to dream feed and mm. not have to wake up, walk over to a cot, you know, wake yourself up, wake the baby up when you get them out to feed. Everyone just kind of stays asleep when you're all in bed together. Mm. Um, and I, I even noticed after about a week, he would just somehow get it out and latch on. And this yeah. is from like a week old. So there's so many times that I'd wake up and he'd just be feeding from me. <laughs> which is awesome it's more sleep yeah (laughs) and so how did you go um with breastfeeding I mean like obviously you're what I mean is how did you go initially um sort of how did you establish breastfeeding absolutely fine so after he was born and he was placed on my chest he just started feeding and that was us. I'm so lucky in that respect. So I know there's a lot of people that have, there's so many issues that can arise with breastfeeding, but we just, it just worked for us straight away. Mm. Um, he knew what to do. My body knew what to do. Yeah. I didn't really have a clue about it, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it just worked. I had a big shock um, after about five days when my milk came in and, mm. um, yeah, I didn't know that that was something that happened. Yeah. So suddenly I'd gone from an A cup to having <laughs> Dolly Parton sized boobs that just sprayed all over the living room. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that was that was a shock. Um, but yeah, really up funny. And, yeah, you wake up and you're kind of like, did I get breast implants <laughs> overnight? Like I already had yeah. big boobs, but like 
yeah, they were like H cups, <laughs> like huge. <laughs> yeah. Well, mine went to, I'd say an E mm. and I didn't, because I had such small breasts before, I didn't have enough skin <laughs> for my boobs. So I had to sit for two days hunched over because they felt like they would rip out of my chest if mm. I straightened my back. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's wild. Um, so something that we've spoken about before, or that you've mentioned to me before, you know, prior to recording was the, um, the autoimmune disease that you were diagnosed with in postpartum. And I was hoping that you might be able to talk a little bit about that and how that sort of affected your postpartum and yeah. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I had a really great, um, first month of postpartum and then my mum went home and my ex went back to work and I was very, um, suddenly everything was all down to me Mm. and I was very on my own and it got harder and harder and I just felt like there was just no, at no point did it get easier. And I was just getting more and more tired. So then my ex would have a few days off work. And then I started to notice that those days when he was off work, I just needed to crash. Mm. And I'd lay in bed for about 17, 18 hours a day and probably just get up to feed the baby, to eat. And I just had no energy for anything else. Mm. And there was part of me that thought that maybe this is normal. You know, I've got a new baby. My sleep's broken. This is how it is. But then it got to about month five, six, and I just knew that it wasn't normal. So um, I actually read the postpartum depletion book and so much in that just made sense to me. Mm. So I took it to the doctors because I was just too foggy headed to even um, know what to ask for. Mm. I took the, the book to the doctors and just said, please, will you run these blood tests? There's an excellent bit in the back, which just, tells you what blood test to ask your doctor for Mm. and he he actually looked at my notes and said um what has your rheumatologist said and I was like what do you mean I don't have a rheumatologist and he says well from your notes from pregnancy I can see that you're showing signs of Sjogren's syndrome and you should be with a rheumatologist and you know, sorting out a care plan, which none of this was actually told to me um, mm. at the appointment that I was meant to get my results to say that I potentially had Sjogren's. I was actually told that I just had um, anemia mm. and was given some iron tablets. So I just thought I was tired um, mm. and fatigued for all this time. So it's probably about six, seven months since these original blood tests and I'd actually had Chogren's syndrome. Um, so that's an autoimmune disease where um, the water cells in the body um, are used to fight inflammation. So then every time I get run down, um, all my, yeah, all my water cells, including like breast milk, um, that gets used to fight inflammation. So I had a few times where I actually, my breast milk dried up mm. Um, for a few days um, on the formula uh, but I yeah I think for a long time I put it down to being a normal part of postpartum and mm. just 
you know, how crappy you're meant to feel. So nobody told you when you were pregnant, even though it was clearly, you know, established that you had Sjogren's syndrome. Why do you think that no one told you? Um, so I think a big reason for that is to do with race. Mm-hmm. So I'm mixed race. Um, my dad's African-American. My mum's um, white English. And for a long time, I thought lots of stuff that had happened during my pregnancy were just coincidences. Mm. Um, there were several things that had happened to do with my care that were basically just not right. Um, this being one of them. And it wasn't until this past month where people are talking um, about uh, maternal outcomes in black women um, and black lives matters and sharing stories that all these things that I thought, Oh, they're just things that had happened to me. They're actually happening a lot to lots of black women and ethnic minority women during pregnancy. So what? Uh, so are... now looking back, um, sorry, sorry, we've got a bit of a time delay. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say. So what? What are some of those um, those things that you've recognised in the last month that um, that you thought were coincidences? Are you, if you're happy to talk about it? Um, I actually had to leave. Yeah, no, I'm happy to talk about it. Um, I actually had to leave one doctor because she just didn't like me mm-hmm. and I never knew why that was and I'm not saying it definitely was a race issue but I just had one doctor that looking back I should have reported her for the way that she treated me uh, but she just really just took a dislike to me and it did affect the care that I was given mm. um, I also had no continuity of care at all Um, every single appointment I had was with a totally different midwife or doctor and as I said before like my notes weren't being shared between them Mm. so there was a lot of things from my care that went missing Um, I was meant to have an anti-D injection which was just forgotten about Um, my notes obviously weren't read to me correctly I was told that I was anemic which is something that actually um, happens in a lot of women of African heritage because we have much lower blood count than um, the average, which I think the average is probably a white male. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, in comparison, it always looks like we're anemic. So yeah. often if, that, if you're diagnosed as being anemic, then that's where all your care is around whereas they're not looking into other things that it could be mm-hmm. um yeah um so yeah it's really hard for me to say oh it was racism uh but yeah i'm starting to see there's definitely a connection in mm. the amount of stories that's that are coming out now yeah and you mentioned um to me a little while ago about something that a midwife said to you around pain and pain relief. Are you able to talk a little bit about that? Cause I was shocked when yeah. you, when you spoke about that. 
so actually it's a meme that i've seen shared around so much recently so it must be a very sort of general knowledge that people have and this was a midwife who had 20 years experience and she said to me oh you're going to be fine when you give birth because black women have a much higher pain threshold and they don't feel pain as much so that to me is scary because (laughs) you want to know that if if you need pain relief that you're going to get it (laughs) yeah but also like such a pain is treated seriously as well yeah it's such a misconception though like how would that even be studied like you know yeah it's just that so blows my mind that someone said that to you and yeah but just the way it was said it was just like a jokey no not jokey but just like a throwaway comment that wasn't even in a bad way so it was just Mm. that was her true belief Mm. that you know black women don't feel pain as much yeah um and so you get the Sjogren's diagnosis so I'm sure that maybe that helped you helped you make a bit more sense about how you were feeling in um those months after Molly was born oh it really did um especially probably about like two three months in there was times where my brain fog was so bad that I couldn't remember his name Mm. um there was like moments where I couldn't even remember if my baby was a boy or a girl just really just things that made me feel so crazy just because my brain fog was so intense um and I was just progressively getting more and more fatigued Mm. that yeah that I just I just knew that it wasn't right and just being diagnosed just gave me an answer as to why I was feeling that way and I chose not to take any medication for it and just control it through diet and lifestyle changes um which for me it 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 does work um mostly um but also it's just given me um just a bit more control over my over my lifestyle and I know that if I'm, if there's certain tingles that I get that I know that I'm going to crash, so then I know I need to take it easy. And Mm. it just just makes me a lot more in tune with my body. Yeah. Yeah. And so just going back to um, how you decided to sort of do the first 40 days in order to give yourself the best opportunity to prevent um, any um postnatal anxiety or depression so how did you sort of go with that did you find that you know well did you did you get any um pnd or um postnatal anxiety um i definitely had postnatal anxiety Mm -hmm. i anxiety is something that i've suffered with for as long as i can remember Mm -hmm. um so that was something that was it wasn't new to me, um, but there was definitely, it ramped up a lot once Marley was born. Um, I'd, ha- I'd actually been teaching yoga uh, from the start of my pregnancy and 
so probably a couple of years before that, I was working with people that suffered with anxiety and depression who wanted to manage it without medication. So although I suffered with anxiety, uh, I had anxiety, I wouldn't say that I really suffered with it too much because I knew how to handle it. Mm. Um, there was times where I did feel like it would get out of control um, and I would start having panic attacks but then I could always relate that to things that were going on in my life. Um, there was a time, well, actually for most of our time in Australia, um, Marley's visa wasn't processed. Um, so we were on a sponsored visa and we just, it was meant to be a straightforward thing to just add him to the visa. Uh, but that actually took 18 months. Mm. Um, so the longer that took, uh, sort of the more panicked I was getting about that. And that was really starting to cause me uh, panic attacks. Yeah, absolutely. I can, well, I've never been in that situation, but I can only imagine <laughs> that that would be super stressful. Um, yeah. On top of have having to look after a baby and having brain fog and no energy. <laughs> um, yeah, that's huge. Um, how did you go once your mum went home and your partner was back at work in terms of, um, you know, meeting people or did you, you mentioned that you didn't have friends in Australia that had children. So how are you going in terms of, you know, finding some, some mum friends? Um, so I think it was when he was about five, six weeks old, um, the, mum and baby group uh, which was organized by the local like health visitor um that started for our age so that was quite nice that gave me um a place to go once a week to meet mums and babies with the same age um and that was great because in the area that we were there was a lot of english people so i felt like um I, it was just nice to meet people that were from England who didn't have family around and just get to chat about our experiences. Uh, but I wouldn't say that I really made many friends from that. Um, although it was just, it was just a good experience to just have other people in the same situation. Mm. And I remember this one, this one day I was meant to meet friends for a coffee, um, and they changed the location, which was from about five minutes where I was to about half an hour. And then that just kind of, I just couldn't stick to the plans because I just couldn't, just thinking about trying to get him in the car, drive all that way. If we were stuck in traffic, then potentially he would be in the car for 45 minutes, mm. which just... I think it was about a month and a half at the time. Mm. And that just seemed like too much. And I just remember being devastated that I just couldn't meet my friends for mm. a coffee this one day. And that really, really upset me. Yeah. And that, that was a really lonely time and everything little that happened like that, looking back, it's such a little thing, but it was just so devastating to me at the time mm. because I just felt, um, but it, yeah, just like I was all on my own. 
It's not little, it's huge because you, you do rely on those connections to kind of, you know, help you through. And it's great for your mental health to, you know, be around other people and talk about what's going on. And um, yeah, I mean, there's so much planning involved with a, a one month old baby. Um, I completely understand why you um, didn't <laughs> drive that half an hour because, you know, you there's so much going on there. You've got to stop for feeds and you've got to make sure you've got enough nappies and all of those things. Like, yeah, I used to, I remember I used to plan to go for a walk, like after my son woke up from a nap when he was really little. And like, I had like five minutes basically to get him in the pram and get dressed and like get organized. And if I missed that window of opportunity, it was like, okay, I'm not going. (laughs) Yeah. It's like that, isn't it? I remember just how long it would take me to leave the house sometimes because you think you're ready and then you have a nappy explosion Mm. and then you need to feed and then suddenly they've dropped off to sleep. So you don't really want to move into the car while you're asleep. And yeah, it's just a kind of a never ending cycle, mm. which I think that was a big lesson that I learned just the sheer intensity of it. Mm. Um, yeah. And how full on um, probably just that whole first year is because you're just constantly learning new things. And as soon as you think you get the hang of it, it all changes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You finally crack your routine and then suddenly they don't need to nap at that time. Mm-hmm. and I I was really lucky I had like a happy healthy baby and I found it hard I like my heart goes out to people that you know don't have that experience mm. of like having a baby that settles or yeah feeds happily we've had a few conversations um, prior to this podcast about um, how racism kind of occurs for you in terms of Mali, um, in terms of what people say to you, what the actions people take. And a lot of it was stuff that I wasn't aware was a thing. And that is totally my white privilege because, you know, I don't have to, um, I'm not in the same circumstances as you are um, with a child who is of colour. And, yeah, I was just um, hoping that maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So I think one of the first things that really rocked me um, was I'd taken for a well check and this actually happened twice with the same doctor as well, which is quite strange. And Marley has um, birthmarks on him, um, which I know some people call them African blue spots, or um, they're also known as mongoloid blue spots. And generally they sit on the sacrum and they're just like a big blue brownie birthmark um, that occurs in, I think it's 80% of, um, non-white children so I know Middle Eastern children Asian um, black and mixed race children and all the babies in my family have always had them and they generally fade by the time they're two but you just would have thought that you know that it would be more of a common knowledge that brown and black babies have this mark mm. so when I took him for a well check um, 
the doctor asked what these bruises were all over him because he has them at the top. He has them on his bum, um, on his back, and at the time it's faded now on his leg. And it was in his blue book um, that he had these marks anyway. So that really, that really rocked me mm. um, when the doctor was asking me why my baby was bruised, especially when I took him back another time and I was asked again what his bruises were. With the, the same, same doctor, doctor. who already seen them, had seen the blue book where they were written in. Mm. And it just felt really um, quite like accusing. Mm. Yeah, I mean, if it's written down and you've already explained to him what they are and for him to ask, I'm assuming it was a male doctor. Um, it was a male doctor. <laughs> for him to question you about it again, yeah, I wonder if it's kind of that like, authoritative kind of I don't know perspective that he's trying to enforce (laughs) yeah but just um just how it happened it just really it just really rocked me in that moment and it was quite scary because even though I had the book and it was noted down just that people think I've bruised my baby Mm. um, was just like a horrible feeling. And I know from history, people have actually lost their babies because of those marks. Mm. Um, If you look, um, there's women in the 60s that have had their babies taken from them just because their babies were bruised and they Mm. weren't bruised. They had birthmarks. That's horrible. That is so heartbreaking. Like, yeah, far out. We just have like so far to come and the fact that, you know, doctors in 2020 or, you know, 2018 as it probably was, don't know what these these marks are. <laughs> yeah, and just by how common they must be, you would think that, well, really everyone would know what they are, but especially doctors who are dealing with babies every day. Mm. And did that kind of, did that ever come up for you again um, in any sort of like, I guess, medical appointment or anything like that? Was it something that you had to sort of be conscious of? Because I can imagine that that would be quite stressful. Um, It's not something that I've had to be conscious of, but it's something that I am always kind of unconsciously aware of. Mm. I know that I'm whenever I do go to the doctors I'm always on edge that oh have I done everything correctly um Hmm. just very I I often feel like a child Mm. if that makes sense yeah yeah because Um, there's like there is clearly a power imbalance yeah yeah there really is um And just, I think with my experience with the health service over the last few years, um, one, I go to the doctors as little as possible and I just try and use holistic care just as much as I can. Mm. I don't blame you (laughs) for wanting to avoid being in those situations. Like that's, yeah, that's really horrible. Um, were there any other sort of um, situations with Marley that you wanted to talk about? 
Um, so there's um, something that we spoke about before, um, which was to do with race. Um, yeah, so I've been getting a lot of messages um, asking if Mali can be featured on mixed race baby sites and Instagram pages. Mm. And, and my response a- to you was like, what, <laughs> what's that? <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> now, so, so can you explain? <laughs> yeah, so there is a lot of uh, sites that just feature mixed race babies. Mm. And yeah, brown babies are heavily fetishized and even sexualized. Um, I remember being pregnant and I had a friend describe my baby as going to be so hot Mm. and there's so many people that just tell me oh I wish I had a brown baby um as if that's just like a normal statement to make Mm. and yeah there's just there's a lot of sites and potentially there's a big industry in brown babies and it's just it's scary um Mm. the way I don't know. It's just really bizarre to me that it's one, it's bizarre to me that people would want to share other people's babies and view sites full of babies. Mm. Um, but then when you look at the comments and it's, it's just really, it's really hard, but I found it bizarre before I had a child, but now that, I know that my child is being looked at in this way. Mm. It's, yeah, it's just, it's so uncomfortable to me. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I, when we had this conversation, I didn't know that that, that that was a thing. And I looked at a few of the sites and I was just like, oh my God, like I cannot believe that this, this exists it's just really quite scary to me and you know again like I don't have to think about this sort of stuff and um that's you know my privilege playing a massive role um I can't imagine what it's like for you to um to sort of be on edge having to worry about stuff like that I was just having a chat with a friend earlier um she she's white her partner is african and she said that people um come up and just touch her son's hair all the time and i was just like that's so inappropriate like yeah it's just mind-blowing that people still do this stuff yeah and i noticed that my son's hair gets touched all the time he has um he has a little afro and yeah, he's constantly having people touch his hair and I do stop people from touching his hair um, quite often. Mm. And then I'm looked at as if I'm being aggressive or mean to them for some reason, but that's so invasive is his personal space. Yeah. Absolutely. And even though he's still a toddler, I'm still going to respect his personal space. Mm. And he, do, and he has a lot of people commenting on, oh, um, we need to chop your hair off. And he's so against it. He <laughs> loves his hair. Mm. But I just think, why? <laughs> why yeah. do you need to make these comments to him? And 
you know, I guess, you know, as your, as his mother, you kind of need to talk to him about, you know, consent and personal space. And it would be made so much more difficult to have random strangers coming up and um, touching him without asking. (laughs) Yeah. And I know from being a child myself who always had very curly hair, um, I've spent my whole life having strangers come up and touch my hair and that is so uncomfortable and Mm. so othering, if that makes sense. It's just telling someone that they're different and also kind of telling someone that they're less than you if you feel like you have the authority to just go up and touch their hair. Mm. Kids, so what, in, what other, in what other situation are we going up and randomly touching people? Like, I mean, I know it happens to women when they're pregnant, which is, you know, a whole other issue. But um, And that's funny in itself because I remember joking to a friend that when I was pregnant, oh, at least people aren't touching my hair now. They're touching <laughs> my bump instead, which is still really invasive. But yeah. it actually felt like a break from having people touch my hair all the time wow that is just so full-on and it's like it's so sad that you know you have to kind of be happy with the lesser of two evils (laughs) yeah and I feel like I've always been someone who doesn't want to rock the boat so I've actually always just kind of let things go And it wasn't until I became a mother and seeing these patterns play out um, towards my son that now I've actually found my voice and Mm. will put a stop to things like this. And I think with microaggressions, um, such as having your hair touched or just, you know, little comments that don't really mean anything, but there's an implied meaning. Mm it really does have a deep impact and long-term sort of implications. Um, And I know that while I've always known that they've been happening, I've always brushed it off because, you know, people don't mean it. Whereas now, because I've seen the impact that it's had on myself and I don't want that for my son, I can be a lot more forthcoming about telling people, that that's wrong or actually what do you mean when you say this mm. yeah the the mama bear in you is coming out in full force as it should be yeah. and you should <laughs> not feel shame or guilt or anything when it comes to you know standing up for yourself and your son definitely and this past month and all this um all the things that have been in the media with Black Lives Matters and people actually really learning about anti-racism, mm. that's been so affirming for me to just hear other people's stories where I've always just put that down to, oh, it's just a coincidence that it's happened to me. Mm. Whereas deep down I've known that, you know, it definitely is a race thing, mm. but and that's probably yeah. the people pleaser coming out in you as well. Like, you know, you don't want to feel like, you know, people are being racist towards you because you, you know, you want to give them the benefit of the doubt. But I think if 
other people have similar stories and it's a behavior or an action or a word or whatever the case may be that if it's happening repeatedly, um, yeah, it's, it's probably not a coincidence. Yeah. And I think as well, because I've always um, grown up in a white area, I've always lived in white areas. My whole life has been filled with racism and maybe casually race casual racism and not you know the in your face aggressive stuff that i think most people think of as racism um and i've always just looked at people's intentions rather than the impact that it's had on me so i've always mm. put other people over myself and as long as i don't mean it i can just brush it off whereas with my son because i know that he doesn't know people's intentions and he's only going to soak up the impact that's been a big thing for me thanks for listening to today's episode please come over and say hi on instagram that's where i like to hang out Uh, my handle is at postpartum underscore with underscore steph s-t-e-p-h that's where i'll be sharing podcast episode updates too Hope to chat to you soon.